Well, we're in the uh, book of James. We're journeying through the book of James, and uh, there's a lot of different ways to preach sermons. Uh, my favorite way is to go through books of the Bible, and uh, the, there's a number of reasons I like to do that. Number one, I believe in the whole counsel of God, receiving the whole counsel of God, and so sometimes we may be uh, looking at books of the Bible that might be a little bit less famous, And uh, but today we're, we're looking at the book of James, and we've been doing that for about four weeks now. Another reason to uh, walk through books of the Bible is you get the whole context, the whole message, the whole story of what James is trying to say. And personally, as a pastor, I like to go through books of the Bible because I can't skip those things that I don't want to preach about. And uh, you would notice if I skipped it. So, uh, so we, you know, it forces the, the pastor to preach on things that God's word, God says, is important. And if it wasn't important, he wouldn't have told us. So uh, we're, we're in the book of James, and we're in chapter 2 of the book of James. James, of course, you know, is right after the book of Hebrews. And so I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 2 in just a minute. But I want to review a little bit about chapter 1. And chapter 1 has a lot of information. And I, I want to just review what uh, God's, how God's wisdom can change your life. Scripture tells us in the first chapter of the book of James that you can endure the difficulties, the dark times, the valleys of life. You can endure it with joy if you remember that those bad times are meant to build your spiritual character, eternal spiritual character. And so you can have joy in the midst of those bad times. But even if you're struggling to see how God is working when you're down in those deep, dark valleys, with faith, you can ask God for wisdom, and he'll give you his wisdom. And so no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy or whether you're well-received by men or whether you're persecuted because of your faith, uh, no matter what your health is, good or bad, you can focus your eyes, and you should focus your eyes, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the good health and the bad health, that may change. The poverty or the richness, the wealth that you might have, it, it, it's fleeting. But what is eternal is Jesus Christ. And so we can focus our mind and our eyes on the eternal things of God. And you need to remember that righteousness, doing the right thing, doing that which God tells you to do, it leads to life. But following the temptations that are already found in your heart, that leads to death. Now God is on your side and he wants you to do the things that leads to life. And so that's why God, James 1 tells us, is the giver of good gifts. God gives us good gifts to prompt us and to help us along the way. And above all that, God has given us his word. He has given us his eternal word. And his word is not just for you to hear on Sundays. His word is not just for you to read, but his word is for you to do. When you read God's word, it should be actionable. There should be a response that you and I have to the reading and the understanding and the hearing of the word of God. And so James chapter 1 teaches us how God's wisdom can benefit our own lives. And James 2 takes it to the next step. It tells us how God's wisdom can benefit others, especially those in God's family, the church. 
And so in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 13, you read along silently. James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Heavenly Father, I pray that you take your word and apply it to our hearts. Teach us this day we're willing to listen and do what you have instructed us to listen and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now after reading all of that, you might have gathered that the essential message of this sermon is this. Don't show favoritism to people. Treat everyone fairly. And that's a simple message. It's something we learned in, in kindergarten, I hope. You know, it's something we learned in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. Um, but it, it's a message that we need to hear from time to time. And the reason for this message, the reason that we treat everyone fairly, the reason we are not to show favoritism to people is found in verse 1. Look at verse 1 carefully. It's very important. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Let me rephrase that. Treat everyone with respect because of your faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus ought to impact the way you treat other people. Now, when you read Scripture, and I know that there are many people here that are very learned in Scripture. When you read the Scriptures, do this. Pay special attention to those, I'm going to call it extra words. The words that grammatically might not have to be there for it to make sense. Here's what I mean in verse 1. James could have said, My brethren, do not hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. That makes sense. It would have meant essentially the same thing because we would have known who our faith is in. But he added something about Jesus. He went out of his way to talk about Jesus. In other words, there's something about Jesus 
that should cause us to treat all people fairly. There's something about Jesus that should cause us not to show favoritism to people. So do not hold your faith in Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. But he went beyond that too. You see, he could have said, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. But he added one other word. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about Jesus being glorious that should cause us not to show favoritism. What does that mean for Jesus to be glorious? Because James is really going out of his way to describe the why we should not show favoritism. What it means for Jesus to be glorious, if you were to go back and to study Matthew chapter 17 and some other parallel passages, you would see that uh, Jesus took three men, his three closest disciples, his, his, his inner circles. He took Peter and James and John up on a mountain. You may know the story. And he was transfigured before them. He was transformed. What does that mean? His face shone like the sun, became incredibly bright. His clothing became as bright as light. And they couldn't figure this out, but they knew they were standing in the midst of something completely different. Jesus was revealing to them maybe just a portion of his eternal glory. Jesus is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Later, after Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he rose from the grave with a glorified body. It was Jesus, all right, but the body was somehow different. It was a glorified body. And by the way, Scripture tells you and me that we will receive a glorified body when we're raised from the dead as well. But Jesus had a glorified body. There's something about Jesus being glorified that should cause us not to show favoritism to people. Let me put it this way. We don't have our faith in Moses. He was a godly man, but he was just a man. Our faith is not in Abraham. Our faith certainly is not in Muhammad. Our faith is not in any politician that is, that is alive today. Our faith is in the one person in human history that was more than just a man. He is the eternal God, the glorified creator of all of the universe. And he limited himself and became like you and me. That's who our faith is in. And because we have faith in that one, that Jesus, we are not to show favoritism to any of the people that God has created. None of them. Everyone you encounter, even if they're vile, even if they're disobedient to God, even if they curse God, they're made in His image. And we're to treat all people with respect. Let God take care of the judgment. We're to treat all people 
with respect. You see, this glorified Lord Jesus Christ, we see him too. But we don't see him with our eyes like Peter and James and John. We don't see the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus like those that that were witnesses to his resurrection. But we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ through faith. It is our faith in him that causes us to treat people the way they should be treated. And James tells us not to hold these people or not to have this attitude of personal favoritism. The idea of personal favoritism means don't lift up your eyes towards certain people. Just because someone is wealthy or just because someone is rich or just because someone is famous, don't lift up your eyes toward them and then look down upon those that are poor or nobodies. That's not God's way. We're to treat all people the same. There's so many ways that we tend to judge people. We, we judge them by the clothes that they wear, by the color of their skin, by how much money is in their bank account, by the car that they drive or the job that they have. Or we even judge people by what other people say about them. And that, that may be the most amazing at all of everything because you hear something about somebody and, and all of a sudden you have bad feelings toward this other person. When was the last time that you took the time to investigate what someone else said about someone else before, they, before you just believed everything negative that you heard? You know, even in our country, in our country, we have a justice system that we have strived for years and decades and even centuries to try to make it the most just justice system in the world. And I think that it is that. I think that it is that. But here's what we have to understand. Unless we teach these principles to every person, in our society, the justice system will never live, live up to its potential. Why? Because unjust hearts always lead to injustice. It doesn't matter what the letter of the law says. We need people who understand in their hearts and in their minds what true justice really is. We could learn a lesson from how the Lord instructed Moses. Listen to what the Lord said to Moses in Leviticus 19, verse 15. The Lord said, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Our society could learn some lessons from God. God himself, he said those words. And God's standards are always right. Why shouldn't we play favorites? Well, because God doesn't play favorites. In the book of Job, Job had some friends. Sometimes they gave him good advice. Sometimes it wasn't so good. But Job had a friend named Elihu. And in Job chapter 34, verse 18, his friend Elihu was right. He was dead right on this one. He said, God is not partial to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. That's exactly right. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says it as simply as you can. There is no favoritism with God. None whatsoever. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, slave masters were instructed how to treat their slaves in this way. 
Do not threaten them because you know that both their and your master is in heaven. and There is no favoritism with him. We might translate or apply that in our situation as employers treat your employees fairly because you've got someone over you too. And there's no favoritism with him. The world loves some more than others. But we're supposed to love everyone the same. We must love the poor and the unknown and the powerless as much as we love the rich and the famous and the powerful. Why? Because when you come to the cross where Jesus died for all mankind, the ground is level. There are no rich people at the cross. There are no poor people at the cross. There's no black, there's no white, there's no male, there's no female. There is just level ground. And every one of us pales in comparison to our glorious Lord Jesus who gave up his life to forgive us of our sins. So how can we ever continue to be guilty of the sin of favoritism? We need to cast that out of our lives. You see, if we continue to be guilty of the sin of favoritism, then our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ becomes compromised and our witness becomes damaged. Be careful how you treat people. James gives a a very easy to understand example in verses 2 through 4. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, there also comes in a poor man with dirty clothes. The word dirty means vile. It means filthy clothes. He stinks, literally. He doesn't smell good. It's tough to be around. How do you treat that person? God says treat that person with respect. I remember as a kid going to Bacon Heights Baptist Church. And uh, there was a, a grown man who was a mute. He couldn't speak. And he would come to church every Sunday riding a grown tricycle up slide road to come to church to be with God's people. And he would come up and he would see the kids. He'd see us as a kid, you know, a little fourth grader. And he'd come up and he'd want to hug us. And he didn't smell good. But my mom said, you give him a hug. You treat him right. Treat him well. Don't make fun of him. He is God's child. And the only thing that he could ever do was to let you know that he liked you. He would look at you. He'd do that. And it meant, you're okay. And I remember one time in the, in the sermon, there was a sermon, and I was sitting at the back with a friend of mine, and we were, we were playing a game. We weren't listening to the sermon. Sorry, Hank Scott, Pastor Scott. But we weren't listening to the sermon, and we were playing this game on a piece of paper. And all of a sudden, Hank Scott stopped his sermon. We got real quiet. We thought, oh, he, he's seen us playing this game. He's going to get us. And Hank Scott said, thank you. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to get it now. Because 
I got real quiet when Hank Scott paused. And then he said, thank you. He was saying, thank you to me. Thank you for being quiet during my sermon. I'm going to get it when I get home. I was so scared. And my mom told me, no, it wasn't you. It was that gentleman. He walked up to some teenagers that were sitting up front who were making a little bit of noise. And even though he, he was also deaf, he couldn't hear the, he saw that they were sort of rumbling around and, and distracting people. And he went up to them and he did this. And then he did this. And then he turned to Pastor Scott standing right there in the middle of the sermon and he did this. And that's when Pastor Scott said, thank you. We're to treat all people the same. Everyone the same. God's image is within every person. No matter how we see them on the outside. If someone comes into your assembly, into church, big church, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, hey, hey sit here in a good place. Or you, and then you say to the poor man, you stand over there, away from me. Or you sit by my footstool. Literally, do you know what it says? Sit under my footstool. I'm going to sit here in my chair, and I'm going to have my footstool, and I want you under my footstool. What a ridiculous idea. But that's how we make people feel when we put them down of the way they look or they don't talk right or they don't come from good stock whatever that is he says have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives there's three questions that James asks beginning in verse 5 question number 1 he says listen my beloved brethren did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. If God has chosen the poor man and you've dishonored the poor man, whose side are you on? You see, if God has given faith to the poor or to the disabled or to the mentally deficient or to the spiritually wounded or to the widow or to the orphan, who are we to act like we're better than they are? They're made in the image of God just as much as you and me. Just as much. Just because you might have the benefit of being wealthy or in your right mind or whatever it is you have. You're no better. I'm no better. In 1971, a great movie came out. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You remember that one? At one point in the movie, I'm talking about the one with Gene Wilder, not the new one, not the one with the pirate, the one with Gene Wilder. And in and, and that movie, Violet, one of the spoiled, rotten kids, she picks her nose with her pinky and she says, spitting's a nasty habit. And Willy Wonka says, I know a worse one. You know, there is a worse thing than being poor or disabled or mentally deficient or spiritually wounded. There's something worse than being a widow or an orphan. It's being their judge. It's a much worse habit to be someone's judge. 
See, the poor in Christ will gain eternal riches someday. The disabled will have new legs or new eyes or new spine. The mentally deficient will be brilliant beyond your wildest dreams someday. The spiritually wounded will be made whole. The widow, she's the bride of Christ. The orphan has a heavenly father and a family more numerous than all the grains of dirt and mustard seeds. Don't look down upon someone for how they are right now. You remember what they're going to be someday and treat them like that. They are children of the king. Children of the king. Question number two in verse six. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? I need to give some context here. When the New Testament was written, the Roman Empire ruled the known world. And Roman law explicitly favored the rich. In fact, if you were poor, if you were part of the lower class, they had a class system. And if you were part of the lower class, it was against the law to sue the upper class. If you were poor, you could not sue the rich. Why? Because they were afraid that poor people would take advantage of it for their own gain. So they disallowed the poor from suing the rich. At the same time, the rich could sue the poor as much and as often as they wanted. James asked, who is it who drags you into court? Isn't it the rich that drag you into court? Why do you admire them? Why do you favor them, he asks. Question number three, verse seven. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Listen, even today, when the rich and the famous denigrate our Lord Jesus Christ, why do we admire them? Why do we follow them? We ought to follow God. We ought to admire God. Don't be impressed with the famous. Don't be impressed with the rich. Be impressed with God because guess what? God is their God too. God owns them too. The rich don't own you. The famous don't own you. God owns you. And God owns them. Be impressed with Him. Don't show favoritism. Do the opposite. What's the opposite of favoritism? Love everybody. Love everyone. Verse 8. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. What does it mean to love someone? Well, to love someone doesn't mean you like everything they do. You've got people, perhaps, in your own family that you desperately love. With all of your heart. But sometimes you don't love their choices. Sometimes they do things that damage themselves and maybe even damage you. And you don't like it. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to lovingly, gently confront them about it. Give them advice if they'll take it. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just to sit down and say, do you know that I love you? Yeah, I know you love me. 
Listen to me for a minute. I've been around the block. I've seen a lot of things. I've made a lot of mistakes. And I think that the choices that you're making right now will lead to bad things for you, and I don't want that. The most loving thing you can do sometimes is to confront someone in a loving way about their choices. Loving someone doesn't mean you always agree with them. I mean, if you're married, you probably know that, right? You and your spouse don't always agree, but you love your spouse. Jesus didn't always agree with his disciples, but he loved them. By the way, they were always wrong, but he loved them in spite of them being wrong, sometimes horribly wrong. He still loved them. He loved them all the time. Loving someone means this means giving. Loving means giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you love someone, you give to them. You give to them. Verse 8 tells us to love all our neighbors as ourselves, all of our neighbors. But loving only some people, well, that's the sin of partiality. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And we become guilty of breaking the entire law. Verses 10 and 11 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one little point, he has become guilty of all. For, all who said, uh, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. God's law is like a fabric, uh, a, a garment made out of, out of one piece of fabric. It is seamless. And if you tear one part, you've torn it off. God's law is like an omelet. And you put good 11 good eggs in there, and then one rotten, nasty, sulfur-like smelling egg in that omelet. You haven't ruined one-eleventh of the omelet or one-twelfth of the omelet. You've ruined the whole thing. That's what breaking God's law is like. People say, oh, I'm not so bad. I haven't committed the big sins. Have you committed any sins? Sure. Then you've broken the law of God. Many of us have high moral standards. We don't smoke or drink or chew or go out with girls that do. That's right. So many of us have careful speech. We try to use good words and not those bad words. But how many of us show favoritism? I think James would say, your moral standards are high, that's good. But you look down upon people, you've broken the law of God. Don't do that. We have to be loving toward everyone we encounter. Verses 12 and 13 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you were to stand before Jesus today and he were to ask you this question, how would you respond? Here's the question. Did you love your neighbor? You might 
be able to say yes to that. But what if he was to say to you, how? How did you love your neighbor? By what tangible means did you love your neighbor? Is there any tangible evidence that would stand up in court that shows that you loved your neighbor? What about that unlovable person at work? Yeah, that too. Sorry. Hate to be the bearer of bad news. But that irritating guy at work, yeah. You got to be loving to them too.